Welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. And guys, today we are very excited to have Dr. Theodore Grincheroff. He is coming to us all the way from uh, sunny Palo Alto, California. Uh, Dr. Grincheroff, he is a professor of surgery at Stanford and also the Associate uh, Chief Quality Officer for Innovation and Safety. Dr. Grancharoff, once again, thank you very much for being here. And, um, you know, tell us, I, I assume you're from Denmark, is that right? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the United States and what you're doing out at Stanford. First of all, thank you, Harvey, for uh, having me uh, uh, on the podcast. Uh, you know, I've been a fan of the show and uh, and, and was excited to uh, be one of the uh, guests uh, uh, this week. So yeah, I've I've actually practiced uh, medicine or surgery uh, many places. I, I started my career in Denmark, uh, then moved for a couple of years to Pittsburgh, then spent 16 years in Toronto, Canada, and uh, joined uh, Stanford last summer. In 2022, uh, and d- during my career, I've always been looking for opportunities to to bring more transparency, uh, more um, open mindset, and uh, and looking for opportunities for improvement. So I started my my academic career in Copenhagen in Denmark, looking in and I was late 90s, 99 to 2003, looking at. Uh, developing a virtual reality system to measure the skill of the operating surgeon. And that was at the time where there was very little knowledge around the variability in skill and performance in the operating room. We kind of assumed that once you graduate um, from a respectable uh, residency program, uh, you are good enough and we're all good enough. But the reality is that there are so many factors that in- impact our performance. And that's what we were looking to, to investigate um, and we found tremendous variability. We, we found tremendous variability in abilities and then skill acquisition and then performance. And that was at the time where we're looking at various outcomes and show and saw tremendous variability in outcomes. So I always uh, had this question as how do our performance uh, in the operating room as individuals or teams and an organization relate to post-operative outcomes. And this has been my journey since uh, 99 till today, uh, where I think we've made some uh, uh, successful implementations and developments of technology and approaches. But uh, I also realize that there is still a lot to do and there's so many things that we can and we should do better. Sure. And, and, and that, you know, that's going to lead me to my first question is, you know, how do we do as far as surgery and surgical training and assessing a surgeon's ability? How are, how do we do compared to other sectors? Let's say um, airline pilots, let's say Navy fighter pilots, let's say uh, people who who really have to use precise physical technical skills in order to do their job. How are we doing as a surgical profession, would you say, in general? Yeah, so um, I, um, throughout my career, I followed a few of these high-risk, high-performance industries. Uh, aviation is one of those, oil industry is another one, nuclear, uh, so obviously military. 
Um, and uh, I think there is a common theme here uh, among all these uh, industries is there is uh, a process, uh, a measurement process, which is objective um, and uh, it's high stakes. So uh, if you uh, perform, if you pass the test, you move on. Uh, if you don't, uh, you don't, you 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 can't uh, um, be uh, entrusted with taking care of high-risk uh, environments. So uh, in surgery, we still practice. We've we've adopted this culture of uh, failure to fail. So uh, we are we're afraid uh, to uh, we're we're afraid to measure objectively because we don't know what to do with the results. Uh, we don't know what to do with those who fail. It's uh, it's a uh, it's a challenging uh, ethical question, uh, and uh, we still in 2023 we still rely on many subjective measures around uh, abilities, skill, and performance um, in the critical step in the three critical steps in the development of the surgeon from selection to promotion to certification. We still do selection with uh, a few guys around the table determining whether uh, this candidate is good enough. It always horrified me that project, that, that mm -hmm. because in 15 minutes you make uh, serious decisions about the future career of the individual that's sitting in front of you without any objective data. We still uh, have a um, educational system that's time-based and not outcome-based. So we have a system that is has a fixed time and variable outcome rather than a system that has uh, fixed outcome and variable time, which which many other high-risk industries do. And we still have a certification process that's uh, very uh, subjective or based on um, uh, data that's, uh, that not necessarily is reliable. So, so going and passing an exam doesn't ne necessarily make you a good or a bad surgeon. So, so I think a lot of things that we can learn and a lot of things that we can do better, but it all starts, but there are two fundamental uh, themes here. One is the measurement process that needs to be objective and reliable and the culture uh, which uh, allows us to uh, look in the mirror and say we failed and there are things that we can do better and uh, and that's okay. Uh, as long sure. as we recognize it, we can fix it. Yeah, you know, I, I think about, you know, I, I, I took my initial American Board of Surgery written exam in 1998, right when I came out of residency, and then I had I had a uh, an oral exam shortly thereafter. But but you know now it's as a matter of fact, just in in a few weeks I have to uh, do my maintenance of certification, and it's essentially I was talking to Skip before it's essentially an open book test. They they give you they give you all of the all the papers, and you just have to find the answer and 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 choose it, and and so they're they're putting a stamp of approval that I'm a, a a competent surgeon just because I can look at the papers and find the answers, and it has nothing to do with my uh, with my technical skills. It's it's an interesting thing. We actually a few years ago uh, we did a study. We asked every single program director in Canada to tell us out of the graduating class in their programs what percentage of these individuals they felt had the necessary skills and knowledge to practice independently. And the mm -hmm. consensus was that approximately 15% of the graduated residents didn't have the knowledge and skills, yet uh, they graduate, yet they uh, um, you know, go out to society and practice. And, uh, and this is uh, where high quality process is necessary. And this is a high quality process 
that's very well established, very well refined, and very well implemented in all these other industries that we talked about. So, so still a lot to do. Um, and uh, and again, one of the challenges is is not that we don't have evidence. It's not that we don't have tools. It's it's a matter of implementing it. Sure. And and that's going to lead me to my next question is. You know, when you, you talked about measurement now, we, you know, we do have ways of measuring surgical outcomes. OK, what is your surgical site infection right now? That That's not totally on the surgeon, but, you know, or how many times have you cut the common bile duct or things like that? And we can measure those. But, you know, as we are, are there other metrics that we need to start measuring about, you know, maybe efficiency and maybe maybe you can do an operation and, and have a great outcome, but maybe it takes you three times as long as the average person. And with some of the technology, and, and, and I want to get into to maybe talking about the, ro- the robotic surgery, are there, are there data points that we can measure um, easier and better than we used to could that, that may give us a better idea of a surgeon's uh, technical skills? Yeah, so that's a great point. Uh, we use outcomes as the primary measure. And the reason is uh, it's fairly easy uh, to measure. We know what, uh, as you said, uh, what percentage of your patients uh, ended up with a wound infection. We know uh, what the mortality rate is. We know all these things. They're easy to measure. I always say, though, that this is not the right approach. I feel that we there are so many factors that contribute uh, to a certain outcome that are outside of the control of the surgeon or the surgical team or the organization. Uh, there are so many of them that are related to the patient, to the disease. Uh, some of them are related to uh, process measures in the operating room. So mm-hmm. I think we should shift our focus from outcome measures to process measures. Uh, and uh, I, I've always liked uh, this. Uh, uh, it it uh, uh, the the, the quote in this uh, book, uh, Atomic Habits, showing that you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your processes. Uh, so all yeah, we can do as, as professionals is we, we, we can have these ambitious goals. Uh, every organization announces them at the end of the year in their strategic goals for the following year. And they mean nothing to the front line. Uh, they mean nothing. OK, we're going to be. Um, we're going to reduce our anastomotic leaks. We're going to reduce our surgical side infections. Meet absolutely. These goals sound great, or the journey to, to zero. These goals sound great uh, to in the boardroom, but they mean nothing to the front line. The front line wants to know what can they do in their, their daily work? What can we do as surgeons, as nurses, anesthesiologists, or anyone in the operating room participating in the care? What can we do to make sure that we, get, we have great outcomes? And what we can do is impact measures. Uh, uh, process measures. Uh, mm-hmm. Do we keep our patients uh, uh, normothermic? Do we have low blood loss? Do we uh, have certain efficiency metrics? Do we perform technically to the uh, you know expectations? So so these are things that we should measure, and these are things that we can actually improve. Uh, so I think uh, we need to make this shift from outcome focus, obsession with outcomes, which is, of course, important to obsession with process. And if we fix the process we have, which we have control over, I have no doubt that outcomes will follow. And this is one of the, the fundamental concepts uh, that we had in mind when we introduced the 
operating room black box uh, process uh, or, or project that uh, we've been engaged for a few years now. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Theodore, because I was that was going to be my my next question is when I was reading your bio, uh, biogra- biography uh, on the Stanford site, it, it mentioned the uh, the surgical black box. And it, it sounds I know nothing about it and it sounds very, very intriguing. So so talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this was uh, an idea that I got when I started my PhD in 99 and it's been the purpose of my work for so many years. Again, we uh, it came out uh, of the observation that we had huge variability at, at, uh, at, at on outcome level, on performance level, and we had huge variability uh, in, uh, in uh, post-operative outcomes. And we knew a lot about the patient factors, the disease factors, the post-operative management, but the what happened in the operating room remained to remained as a black box. So we wanted to to uh, to bring some transparency and bring and, and illuminate the black box of surgery. So we always uh, assume that our performance as individuals, as teams, as an organization, performance of the technology. We use in the in the operating room performance uh, on on uh, you know from uh, environmental factors, uh, a bunch of other factors like fatigue, attention, distractions, and so on. These were all factors that uh, had uh, an impact on on our performance and outcomes, and we had no chance of measuring those. Uh, and again, inspired by aviation and nuclear and oil, we wanted to bring this a little more transparency in this piece of the puzzle that was so significant but we had such poor understanding of um, and uh, it was a long process uh, it took uh, us several years because there were so many obstacles on a technological um, level on cultural level uh, and uh, change management level but uh, uh, we were able to have the first prototype uh, when i uh, practice in Toronto, and uh, one of the reasons why I moved here to Stanford is to enhance this even further and bring more collaborations with engineering, human factors, um, obviously healthcare research, and so on, so that we can get to that next level where surgery can be more transparent, more predictable, more precise, and make this shift from reactive, which it is today, to proactive, and from safe to ultra-safe. You, you mentioned, um, you know, fatigue, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, I um, I trained I trained at Vanderbilt, and and I trained prior to the eighty-hour work week. I mean, that it, you know, if shoot, you know, if if I only had to work eighty hours, that was you know a huge, huge, slow week. Mm-hmm. But um, but you know, now we have the eighty-hour work, work week. But when we get into practice, you know, the hospitals that we work for, no, nobody, nobody, it seems like that all goes out the window. You know, hospitals may hire a locum tenums to come in and, and, and fill, and, and that person's on call 24-7 for a, an entire week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody's even looking at, you know, fatigue and this and how it could affect uh, surgical outcomes. Is, is that something that you think is going to come more to the forefront uh, as we move along? Yeah, so uh, I think uh, uh, f- uh, fatigue, uh, along with a lot of other factors that we've studied, uh, matter. Um, we, uh, 
Um, I, I, I would still argue that in 2023, we don't have a good uh, understanding of um, our limitations as, as humans in the operating room. Uh, aviation does, uh, nuclear does, uh, uh, military, uh, oil industries, they, they all do. They, they, they know, understand, they all understand what is, uh, where is the threshold where your a fatigue, where your performance starts declining and uh, this is no longer responsible. We still don't do that in, uh, in uh, surgery. Um, uh, I think we we've gone a long way. We've made a long progress. We've, we've made progress in regulating some of this, uh, but still, I would argue that we don't have good evidence-based measure of uh, establishing when uh, we should stop operating and uh, and get a few hours of sleep. So yeah, so this is one of the things that we measure uh, 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 the impact of physical fatigue. Um, uh, and mental fatigue on performance and outcomes, uh, along with the impact of uh, of distractions on our performance and outcomes. Uh, I, I don't know how many times when we when I do a, a procedure in the operating room, somebody interrupts me and asks me, "Hey, uh, how long do you have left?" Or, "Hey, how about this patient who is on the um, on the floor and needs a prescription for this?" Uh, and and so on and so on. Um, or what did you do last night or what are your plan plans for next weekend? Uh, we actually looked at, in the early days of our project, we looked at the impact, the, 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 the frequency of, of distractions and interruptions, and uh, it was off the charts. Uh, we also found that this impacts our performance and we, it impacts, at some point we'll have the evidence that impacts outcomes. Uh, but imagine if somebody interrupted us every 30 seconds while we were doing this discussion today, to, to probably, probably it won't be a very re, uh, meaningful uh, thoughts we'll be sharing here. And uh, um, it, uh, it we, we, we need to learn from the data. And once you see it, you can't un unsee it. So, so distractions was something that we established early on was a major problem in our practice. Uh, stress was another one. So, uh, you know, um, I remember when I was a junior resident, and pro probably you remember as well, uh, how um, uh, we communicated, how the, how hierarchical the operating room was, and how uh, often we work with people who were who exhibited uh, uh, disruptive behavior or or poor communication, and we as, uh, accepted it as the way we do business. But now we know that this results in stress and stress impacts the quality of performance. So we found in one of our research uh, studies that when the, the operating surgeon, resident fellow or, or whoever is, is under stress, the, 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 the likelihood of uh, um, uh, uh, making errors and causing intraoperative adverse events was increasing with 66%. So wow. uh, high quality communication Good culture in the operating room is important not only for our well-being; it's also important for the quality of care we provide to our patients. Sure, I, uh, you know, I, it it seems like I've heard that, you know, if you are interrupted during your work, let's say you're totally focused and locked in, that it may take you 15 or 20 minutes to to regain that focus. And and I, uh, you know, one of my, you know, we have some operations that we do that are kind of a love hate. You love to do them, but sometimes in the middle of them, you hate doing them. And mine is a thyroid, a thyroidectomy. I love doing thyroidectomies, 
but you know when you're when you're trying to find that the recurrent laryngeal nerve and identify it and and my policy in the operating room is okay no music no nothing and you know and 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 the, they knew that when I said okay y'all can turn the music on they knew that I had found the nerve and I had identified it but uh, I did I, I want it completely silent and until until I identify that nerve. It's it's well established in aviation. They've got the the concept of sterile cockpit, so there is no non-operational discussion when the plane is under ten thousand feet. Uh, wow. So, okay, I didn't so, know that. So uh, it it makes so much sense, and we call it the the, the we we try to t- translate that concept into the operating room. When I'm doing an astomosis, uh, it's a sterile it's a, it's a sterile OR. No non-operational non-operational discussion. Nobody should be asking you. Hey, did you watch the game last night or what you're doing next weekend? But it also is important for us to learn that uh, we need to do the same to our colleagues. Uh, we found we were we had a, a multidisciplinary uh, discussion here uh, at Stanford a few weeks ago, looking at um, things like uh, incorrect counts at the end of the procedure. And uh, actually, it's if you look at you should uh, you should look in your hospital how many incorrect count incidents you've mm-hmm. had in the past 12 months uh, and I can guarantee you there will be several hundred and it, and if you look at that each of them adds 30 to 45 minutes additional OR time so the patient stays half an hour 45 minutes longer under anesthesia we got five six people in the room spending half an hour each and if you put it all together it will translate into shutting down an OR for a few weeks uh, uh, per year, which is extremely expensive for the hospital. Sure. So this the the root cause of that uh, is the fact that we as surgeons or anesthesiologists disrupt or distract uh, uh, the 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 most critical step of the operation for the for the scrub tech, which is counting the instruments in the beginning and the end of the case. So obviously, if they're trying to count, trying to focus, and you constantly engage them in a conversation or asking them to do things. The, the risk of them miscalculating stuff is much higher and the risk of incorrect counts at the end of the procedure much higher. So I think this understanding and respect in the operating room of when, when are we in a critical step and the critical steps are different for the surgeon, for the nurse or the anesthesiologist. So if all of us understand that, if, all, if we all share a mental model about how we respect each other in that critical step, I think a lot of good improvements uh, will happen that would translate not only in better patient care, in, but also in better communication and, uh, and teamwork, and also uh, reducing costs, which all of us uh, care about these days in this physical environment. Sure. I wanted to touch on a little bit about surgical innovation. And, you know, um, first of all, I want to talk about robotics. And, you know, I know that uh, robotic surgery has been around for many, many years. And, um, you know, it's interesting that it it uh, initially was very um, market driven, consumer driven. You know, patients were wanting to have robotic surgery despite the data that, that shows that it was much more expensive and the outcomes. But but I do think that that we are maybe and, and I'm sure you know much more about this. We are getting more efficient with robotic surgery and, and, and driving the cost down. Where do you see do you see that just expanding to to other disciplines? And, and what, what do you think the future looks like for uh, for robotic surgery? Yeah, so <laughs> that's a great question. And probably that could be a theme of a whole uh, conference. 
uh, about the future uh, of robotic surgery. And uh, I think when robotic surgery came to the world, it was a fairly unclear value proposition. It obviously, it looked cool. Uh, it was high tech. Uh, all of us loved that label to be a robotic surgeon and uh, interact with really complex uh, uh, technology. I still think that in the early days, um, the, the robotic surgery idea was solving a problem that not necessarily exists, which was dexterity. I, I, I still don't think that dexterity is the reason why bad things happen to patients. It's not because the, the surgeon, the hands of the surgeons don't of the surgeon doesn't don't do what their brain is telling them to do. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. robotic surgery has evolved though, uh, and I think uh, it, we're starting to see more value on ergonomics. Uh, we we didn't pay attention to ergonomics in the early days, and now we know that this is extremely important. It also uh, impacts. Uh, I think eventually it will start impacting our decision making. So the robotic surgery is, by definition, uh, it, it digitizes the, the 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 process of executing a task or an operation, and uh, with large amounts of data, we'll be able to understand much better um, how to execute certain steps, what instruments to use, uh, and so on. So I think uh, the next the, the frontier of robotic surgery, what it will bring to our profession is this uh, uh, knowledge and uh, large data sets that will make us better at choosing the right decisions. And if we use the data correctly, we can probably also use it to reduce costs uh, because uh, we will be able to understand which instrument, uh, how often to change instruments, who should be doing steps of the procedure. So, so it's a matter of, it's not a matter of technology, it's a matter of how we use technology to generate meaningful data that answers questions that matter to us as clinicians and our patients. So, so I think we've seen this evolution of robotic surgery from a purely um, mechanical tool that uh, enhances dexterity with limited value to a really uh, a platform that uh, allows us to generate data for better decisions, uh, both in terms of efficiency, but also in safety. And I think once we get to that point, robotic surgery will realize its potential. And it's nice to see that uh, we see such uh, not only great uh, developments from an engineering point of view, but also much more thoughtful adoption of uh, this technology across many surgical specialties. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned uh, you mentioned ergonomics. I mean, you know, I can I can you know just personal friends and colleagues. I can count many of my colleagues who have actually had to cut their surgery surgery career short because they had mm -hmm. they had a bad neck or they had a bad back. They had to quit operating. And, and a lot of surgeons who um, I don't do robotic surgery, but a lot of my colleagues who do have said. You know, this is going to potentially extend my career because, you know, I just don't hurt. You know, you're doing a laparoscopic cholecystectomy on a patient who has an extremely large body habitus and you're, you're, you're all contorted trying to get exposure. And, uh, yeah, at the, at the end of those cases, you're you're hurting. Yes. Well, well that's an important thing as well. You know, we uh, again, if we look from other industries ergonomic is the major focus ergonomic is the major focus uh, the well-being 
uh, of uh, the um, practitioner is a major focus. And still, we uh, it, we we don't respect that, uh, and we still believe that we are uh, uh, you know unbreakable, uh, and, and and that's not a good attitude. I, I think definitely robotics can play a, a significant role here in 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 extending our quality of life. And, and, and Theodore, you know, I would be we'd be amiss if we didn't, you know, when we're talking about surgical innovation, innovation, we have to bring up AI. I mean, AI is the, the hot button issue right now. And what what role do you see AI playing in, in surger, surgery uh, specifically in the future? Yeah, so yeah that's a great question, uh, Harvey. I think uh, still a lot of people. Uh, have unrealistic expectations about AI and surgery, and I still see it. Uh, a lot of people see it as a, as a, as the goal uh, of uh, of our practice, and I think it's important. I always keep under highlighting that is it's important to uh, have a realistic expectation of what AI can do, and AI is an amazing tool. AI is an amazing tool. It's not the goal, but it's an amazing tool that when we have uh, relevant clinical question that could be answered with large data sets ai can play a significant role we use ai for many purposes we use ai to quantify performance we use ai uh, to help us identify outliers uh, among surgical procedures or steps of surgical procedures to identify bleeding to uh, track instruments so so ai can do this much better and much cheaper than a human I remember when we started our work with the, our black box, in the beginning, we were processing maybe 100 procedures a month uh, because of the limitations of, the, of, of human time and, and human skill. Today, we process tens of thousands of procedures a month with, with AI and still get the information that we need in order to improve. So, so I think AI... Uh, we'll still we, we, we'll see a lot of developments, and I think if we remember to use it as a very powerful tool, not as a goal, and if we use that tool to answer questions that are clinically relevant that matter to us as clinicians and and to our patients, I think we'll see a lot of uh, uh, exciting innovations in in the coming months and years. You, you think about that patient who. Um, you bring to the operating room and you do a low anterior resection on them mm -hmm. and the anastomosis you think it looks good and you're sitting here and you're saying okay should i do i do a diverting loop ileostomy or do i not and you know our, a lot of us say well if you think about it you do it it's kind of it's kind of like retention sutures if you if you think about putting retention sutures in put the retention sutures in but it would be it would be because a lot of times we, we the anastomosis looks great and it breaks down Mm -hmm. and, and other times, sometimes you think eh, this could be a little tenuous and you, eh, we'll leave it alone and, and they do fine. It sure would be good if you had a tool that could say, OK, yes. you, you, this patient, you need to do a loop ileostomy. I don't care how how good the anastomosis looks. So I, I think there may be a, a, a place where AI could help with some of that, maybe. And yeah. it may not even be AI. It just may be taking the data that exists already. And I don't know. Yeah, it, it is a form of AI, and, and again, we're using this today for similar decision-making. Because we as surgeons, 
look at anastomosis only from the technical aspects. Hey, well, did we put the sutures uh, the way we usually do? Does it look good? Does it look vascularized and so on? So uh, th this is the thing that we can see and our brain has a limitation how many data inputs we can handle. The, the, the reality though, and I remember one of my colleagues in Toronto used to say that even the perfect anastomosis can leak. Uh, the reality is that there are so many factors that contribute to an astomotic leak. It, it's not only the quality of the surgical execution, it's uh, uh, certain patient factors. It was the patient uh, 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 hypotensive during Hypo, the Hypotensive, were they cold? Were they, yeah. were they, were they hypo, yeah. hypothermic and so on? So we don't necessarily, as individuals, keep track of all these variables. But AI can do it for us. And this is one of the use cases that we use the black box today is at the end of the procedure to see the holistic story here. How was the patient? What was the, the disease, the, the uh, disease uh, stage? Uh, how was our technical execution? How were all the other factors? Uh, and then at the end, build a, a reliable predictive model that will uh, help us make the right decision for this patient. Sure. Well, Theodore, uh... You know what a what a breath of fresh air to speak to another surgeon. Uh, you know, Dr. Lancaster is an internist, and so we don't. You know, we we're always poking poking fun at each other. But this has been a a really interesting uh, discussion, and uh, you know, I could sit here and we could talk all day. But uh, uh, I we sure hope on behalf of Baptist, thank you so much for being uh, on our podcast. Uh, we certainly would like to have you back. Uh, you know, in a few months, maybe a year to see, to see how things have progressed. Uh, you know, this whole AI uh, stuff is just taken off and uh, it'd be interesting to see how far we've come in a year or so. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Harvey. I really enjoyed our conversation. OK, thank you very much.